So that's Exodus chapter 19, starting at verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Repidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out, called out to, sorry, called to him out of the mountain, saying, "Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant." You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. Micah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So what is at the heart of true religion? The largest library in the world is the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Its main reading room of its Thomas Jefferson building, in there you'll find eight large statues, 
each representing respectively the eight categories of knowledge of civilized life and thought. And one of those categories it was decided was religion. And above that statue representing religion, there's a large tablet on which an inscription says this. What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? These are moving and inspiring words found there at the heart of American public life. And who wouldn't want a world of justice and love and mercy and humility? So we could ask, have the Americans there got that right? Is this at the heart of true religion? To which the answer must be, of course, yes. And all the more because these words, as we've just heard, come from the prophet Micah. This really is what the Lord requires to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And then Jesus Christ underlined these priorities. On one occasion, he denounced the religious leaders of his day. Why did he do that? Well, despite their religious fussiness, they neglected what Jesus described as the weightier matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness. So we need to be in no doubt at all. This is what the Lord requires of you and of me today. And so we must ask that question, what does it mean in practice to do justice and to love kindness? And with that, what does it mean that the Lord requires these things of us? And as we'll see, it turns out that our understanding of how it is that the Lord requires such things is all important. And it will determine whether or not we will want to obey this command and in fact, whether or not we'll be able to obey it. So it's our fourth week now in Micah, this prophet who spoke to Israel in 8th century BC um, Israel. And as we begin, look down to chapter 6, we'll see God's people are not living in the way that they should. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice, Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and your enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. So not for the first time in Micah, it's a court scene. There's a case to be heard. And who's in the dock? Well, end of verse two, it is Israel. Notice again who is present for this trial as witnesses. It's the mountains and the hills. Why them? Well, of course, they've been there for ages past. So to speak, they've seen and heard it all. And also we've seen in Micah that one day the mountains themselves are going to melt. The valleys will split open on the day when the Lord comes in judgment. So here's a reminder that this indictment the Lord is presenting is serious. So the case opens in verse 3. Oh, my people... What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. 
So the Lord, if you like, begins his case by asking questions of his people. And we can sense from those questions that the people are not happy. They have got issues with God, in particular with how they think God has treated them, what God has done to them, the language used of how God has wearied them. So somehow the people seem to think God has put a burden on them, which they are struggling to carry, by which they may mean the requirements of God. So if you like, the people's vision is just filled with what they think they are obliged to do for God. And for them, it is a burden. Even they are overburdened. They are weary, they claim. Well, having raised these questions, the Lord then says, answer me. Now, we're not told what the people have to say for themselves, at least not initially. Instead, God continues to speak. And we'll see now how we are meant to think rightly of the requirements the Lord has of us. So first, we are to remember the acts of the Lord who saves. Remember the acts of the Lord who saves. Verse 4, God says, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Did you see the contrast there with what the people were saying? The people claimed that God was wearying them, weighing them down, burdening them. The reality is God has brought them up. He's lifted them from the pit itself out of the land of Egypt. This is talking, of course, about the exodus. In Egypt, the people are experiencing brutal slavery. That's where, if you like, they really were weighed down. But God has freed them. He heard the cry. He raised up Moses and Aaron and Miriam to lead them, dramatically rescuing them, redeeming them, freeing them out of Egypt to be his people. But that's not all. Verse 5, O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. So Balak and Balaam, not as well known as the Exodus, you'll find them in Numbers, where God's people are traveling to the promised land. When Balak, the king of Moab, sought Balaam to curse Israel. But God frustrated the plans of the enemies of his people, kept them safe. But that's not all. We then got Shittim and Gilgal. So after Balak and Balaam, the people were then in this place called Shittim. But what happened there? They rebelled. God judged the guilty, but still stuck with his people. So much so, from Shittim, he brought them into the promised land to Gilgal, just as he had promised. So this is a quick reminder of their history. Why did God do all this? End of verse 5 that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. So what did the people know? What is their Lord God like? The Lord is the Lord who saves. He's shown that in history, what he is like, that in his great kindness, he frees people and rescues them. I wonder if you notice the surprise in verse 4. What God said there isn't actually true, is it? At least it might seem that way on first reading. God said, 
I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. But if we were thinking about it, Micah lived some 700 or so years after the Exodus. So you might say that what God speaks about here didn't literally happen. Those people were never in Egypt. But of course, the point is God has his one people throughout history. And those in Micah's day were a part of those people, and they were still very much benefiting from what God had done in the past. And as God's people in Micah's day looked back to what happened there, it showed them again what their Lord God was like, because God does not change. It's the same reason many of us here are studying Exodus in our small groups, what happened now some 3,000 years ago, because it's not merely ancient history for us. That is our story as the people of God. That is our God, and we are getting to know him better, how he saves his people. But we today don't only look back to the Exodus. We've got so much more to look back on. We can even see what that redemption in Egypt was ultimately pointing forward towards, to that event where our rebellion, our sins were paid for once and for all in Jesus. We see there the wonder of what God has done for us. And so we see how glorious God is, his compassion and kindness and mercy and love. So Micah says, well, God says through Micah, remember the saving acts of the Lord. And then second, following from that, respond to the Lord who gives. Respond to the Lord who gives. So we're back in the courtroom and now the people do find their voice, beginning of verse six. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Now think, what do you make of what the people there say in court? For a start, look again at their description of God. God on high. Now that, of course, is true. God is on high, and there are times where it's very important for us to remember that and to reckon with it. But that's, of course, not all that the people know about God. And it's very strange for them to say that, given what God has just said. Look at the end of verse 2. God is taking issue with his people. And then more than that, verse 3 begins with God saying, Oh, my people. Again in verse 5, oh, my people, such tender words from a compassionate God for these people he'd rescued for himself. And for them then to respond simply and only by saying, God most high, well, is that all they have to say about him? Is God really remote? Are they really dealing with a distant God? Let's read on. End of verse 6. They ask, Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Now, initially, that seems reasonable enough because the scriptures do speak of the need for burnt offerings. Then they speak of these calves a year old. And the point there is how costly this exercise was. Well, think about it. Sacrificing a newborn animal is one thing. But take a newborn and look after it and feed it. 
for a whole year only then to offer it as a sacrifice, well, you can see costs are increasing. Well, with that in mind, look how the people go on, verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Uh-oh. What kind of questions are these? I mean, who could give thousands of rams? Possibly the king, but nobody else. And look what goes next. Ten thousand rivers of oil. And now, if you like, this is getting ridiculous. Even if this was possible now, you might ask, is that what the Lord is after? Would he be pleased with it? What does this show about the way the people are thinking about God and how their relationship with him works? And then look how verse 7 goes on. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So now the people, it seems, are proposing the ultimate sacrifice of a human life. And now we should be shocked, our breath taken away in horror. But this seems to be the way these people are thinking. They're thinking this is the way to be accepted by God. Surely this will impress him if we give what we couldn't give any more. But now as we listen to this, we are meant to be crying out. Maybe even some of the people then should be crying out. What do they think they are doing? Do they really think God wants this? What kind of God do they think that he is? Because you see what they're doing. These people, at the end of the day, are trying to strike a deal with God. And they're going in with a very high offer, as if that will win the day. And this fits, doesn't it, with what we've seen of these people in Micah. They are covetous. Money drives them. That's what makes sense of their attitudes and their actions in the world. And now they are transferring that onto God, as if God thinks like they do. Buy God off. Give him enough to keep him happy. Give him what he wants even if along the way others get hurt. It's a real challenge. Of course, today, I don't think we would propose human sacrifices. But this mindset that it's about what I do for God, the costliness of what I've given up for him, I guess one way that comes to the fore is, do I ever think because of what I have done for God, given up for God, then God owes me in some way. Well, what more do these people's actions reveal? Well, for a start, they do seem to think that their sins can be remedied by their own efforts. They haven't realized that even even if they could give those great sacrifices, it wouldn't deal with the sins. And anyway, God isn't looking for that. Why not? Because of what we've seen so far. The Lord God is the kind of God who himself does what is necessary to bring his people to him. He's the one who does the saving acts, whether that exodus from Egypt or the death of the Lord Jesus. And so his people simply enjoy the benefits 
by grace. That is undeserved kindness towards us. We don't earn it or pay for it or prove our commitment by the costly sacrifices that we make. We simply receive the gifts that this God gives to us. The point is the response we make is just that. It's a response to what God has already done to make us his people. So therefore we know the Lord who saves through his acts. We know the Lord is a God who gives and gives. It's only with that right knowledge of God firmly in place that now we can go on to consider what the Lord requires. And that brings us to verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Well, those three descriptions at the end of the verse, let's take each in turn. What do they mean? What should they look like? Well, first, to do justice. So as we've heard, that National Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. has Micah 6 verse 8 inscribed on the wall. And you'll find there are a number of charities in this country with Micah or 6, 8 as even part of their name. And many more charities will make use of this verse. It is an inspiring verse. And it has this buzzword for today in it, justice. We hear demands for justice all around us, pretty much all the time. But what we must realise, of course, is that a group campaigning for justice may not necessarily mean by justice what Micah does. But what's going to help us to know what Micah means here in verse 8? Well, as we know so often, the context, we need to consider carefully what the Bible means when it speaks of justice. And it would make sense to start with the rest of Micah. So I've put some verses there on the sheet. Let's look through some of them pretty quickly. But beginning of chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house a man and his inheritance. So again, it's these covetous people who want what other people have. And so there they are, they lie in bed or they sit on the tube in the morning plotting. They want more. How are they going to get it? And in particular, they are willing and planning to oppress other people to get it. Micah chapter 3 Verse 1, and I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. So here's a reminder that justice has a lot to do with rulers. That is anyone in authority, particularly over others, because the more you have authority, the more you should be concerned for justice. For others. Justice means a desire for what is right here. Injustice is if people are getting ripped off. Not only their money, but even their lives in some way are being ripped to pieces. Still, chapter 3, verse 11. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price. 
Its prophets practice divination for money. So people in various contexts are wanting justice, but they don't get it. Why not? Because others have money. And money is calling the shot. Whether there's a bribe or a bonus on offer, justice is disappearing. Final one for now. Chapter 6, verse 11, just after our passage. God says, Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? So you can see the picture. There's the deal taking place. It all appears fair. But what of the scales? What of the small print of the contract? Is what is promised, is what is advertised, really what is delivered? That was a quick overview. But what can we say then about what Micah has in mind when he speaks about justice? Now, when we talk about justice, often brought to mind is the practical needs of those far away from us. And that really can be heart-rending, no doubt. But responding to such requests or needs is not primarily what's in view. And that does make sense. If all the needs around the world are justice and we're presented with them and a demand to do something about them, there's no way we could meet all of those. And that would leave us in a state of being perpetually unjust. We would perpetually be guilt-ridden forever, if you like, holding our hands up in despair. But the kind of justice that Micah has in view is possible, even if very challenging. We are to do justice, and it starts close to home. In the relationships that you and I are in, and in particular in our own spheres of influence, we are to look very carefully what happens to those around us What happens to those under us because of the decisions that we make? Those we deal with, do we treat them fairly, even if we could get away with not doing that? Or put it the other way around, what are we willing to do if only someone will pay us enough to do it? So are we those who do justice? Or do we always find the excuses for why it's not possible? And in particular, it's worth saying God's demands for us to do justice do not stop when we enter, say, the workplace. It's still us there as the Lord's people. Now, we might possess, uh, protest. It's just the way it goes in my office. It's just standard practice. Well, by whose standards? What if Micah came into our organization and looked at the ways of we conduct ourselves there, the way that it works? What would he say? That is, what would God say about that? We thought this afternoon about giving. Just imagine the big check gets written here on a Sunday, gets given to Jeremy. He's thrilled. But it's the proceeds of a manipulative business practice. Do you think God would be impressed? Which do you think God would rather? Your money or that you would do justice? Plenty of talk, isn't there, 
around about justice. And we're all quite good, actually, of speaking, particularly the injustices that others are perpetrating. But Micah is challenging us and our actions. Do justice. So maybe afterwards, as we go over the road to food at fives, it would be very easy for the focus of our discussions, we slip into it so naturally, to be the failings of justice elsewhere. Rather, we should be discussing what are we going to do where we have responsibility and influence to do justice. Well, there's so much more to be said about justice and how the Bible talks about it elsewhere. We haven't got time to do that now. But if you'd want to think about it further, this is an excellent book. What is the Mission of the Church by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert talks about more Bible passages, tries to put it all together. There are a pile of copies available by the door. Do grab one, if you like, on the way out. So the Lord requires us to do justice. Well, with that, and more briefly, we are to love kindness. Now, this word kindness is a key Bible word. It gets translated in a number of ways. It can be translated love or steadfast love or loving kindness. But what does this word mean in practice? Well, again, we can look in Micah. This time, turn over to the last verses of the book. We're going to look at them more closely next week. But here, chapter 7 and verse 18, where Micah asks, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. So steadfast love there, the same word as kindness that we had in our passage. A key verse. It comes up again, you'll see, in verse 20. The point is, this is what God is like. God delights in steadfast love. And these verses with the conclusion of Micah's book are telling us the way God's steadfast love is revealed above all is in how he pardons iniquity. He passes over transgression. Again, it takes us to the cross. God there does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And so therefore, we as God's people are to love kindness. If with to do justice, the focus was on our actions, so we couldn't evade that. Here, the emphasis is a changed heart. We are to love kindness. Now, this doesn't mean that kindness is just about some nice, squishy thoughts on the inside. It is still about concrete actions to meet the needs of others in ways that may well be costly to us. So, of course, we are to do kindness, but it's to flow from a love of kindness. Wouldn't that be quite something to pray for, that we would love kindness? That if, in contrast, as we lie in bed in the morning or travel into work on the tube, we're not thinking, how can I get ahead today? How might I be kind to others today? I heard of an interview here in the city this last week where the candidate was asked whether or not he was too kind. What do you think that was getting at? Kind people's instinctive response is to help others. And again, the focus of that kindness will inevitably be those close to home, if you like, those needs they see right in front of them. 
because a kind person will be moved to act, to do what they can to help. But of course, kind people will then also feel the needs of the world more widely. They can't possibly beat them all, but will no doubt try to help a little where they can. And if God's kindness is revealed above all in his dealing with sin, kind people will want their resources to go to meet this need. Which is to say, gospel giving is a great kindness. So to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Back in chapter 4 of Micah, Micah filled our vision, didn't he, with the future mountain of the house of the Lord, to which the nations will flow from every direction, a place of peace and prosperity where the Lord will reign forever. A thrilling prospect. And whether we are heading there depends on the way we are walking now. We saw that in Micah 4 verse 5. He says, all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. How we walk really matters. And now back in Micah 6 verse 8, notice we are not told to walk simply to walk humbly with God. No, we are to walk humbly with your God, that is with our God. You see, this walking is nothing to do with getting into God's good books. Because at this point, we know we are those who know the Lord already, the one who has saved us and now gives to us and has given to us everything. The question now is, how will we respond to him? And the point is, we are those who choose to walk with our God. We want to be with him because we know what he's like, a God of such justice, who loves kindness What better way would there be to live or to walk than to share in his values, to engage in what he is doing? Not to do this proudly or arrogantly, to show off, to draw attention to ourselves. Rather, as verse 8 says, humbly. That is, whatever the great God has given to me, whether gifts or opportunities or resources, well, to serve him with them in return. Do you remember what Micah's name means? Who is like God? To which the answer is there is none like God, certainly no other God of such justice and mercy and loving kindness. And there are no people who are like God either. Well, certainly not of themselves. But our longing, surely, as God's people, is that in fact, with God's help, to some degree, we would be more like God. That we too would do justice and love kindness. And that as that happens, as we walk with our God, the world would see that we have this concern for what is right and fair, for ensuring that others aren't getting hurt or cheated, that we are driven by a practical kindness for others. That in all of that, people will see our desire is not to draw attention to ourselves, but the Lord, all those around us would see something more of the great God with whom we are delighted to be walking with. I'll lead us in a closing prayer. Our Father, we do praise you that you are a God who acts to save 
who gives so abundantly and generously to the undeserving like us. We do praise you again that you're a God of justice and mercy and such abundant loving kindness. And so we pray that in response to who you are and to all that you have done for us, would we walk humbly with you and so to do justice and to love kindness for your glory. Amen.